Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be when a lawless heart... Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're every week talking about faith and how faith connects to the world that we're living in right now so it doesn't just become a ticket into heaven uh, and an excuse to escape this world, but actually uh, we think God cares about this world. And as Christians, uh, a lot of times we've been um, really good at promising people life after death and ignoring life before death. And there's a lot of folks that need to know that the good news is good news now, not just when they die. And I really believe that God, as scripture says, God so loved the world that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So I'm glad you're here. And I don't know what, you know, as you're listening in, what your experience is with Christianity. I know there's a lot of folks that uh, have some bumps and bruises or even some deep wounds uh, from the church. Um, but we get our name at Red Letter Christians from some of the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus highlighted in red. And uh, um, just remembering that 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 God is like Jesus and, and Jesus is unmistakably loving and peaceful and pursuing justice and advocating for those who have been uh, really marginalized, even by religious people. And so uh, that's what we're about. And, oh, God, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, he was asked about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. And uh, (laughs) that's the kind of Christianity we're after. And I get to have a lot of um, guests on this show. And I mean, that's one of the main reasons I do it, because I believe that some of the loudest voices representing Christianity haven't always been the most beautiful voices, the most faithful voices. Um, and so at Red Letter Christians, we we often say that we the way that we change the narrative is by changing up the narrators <laughs> and making sure that we're listening to folks that, that um, their faith is about Jesus, but it's also about justice um, and good news to the poor, because if it's not good news to the poor, then it's not the gospel of Jesus. So today... I'm really excited because it's kind of a a newer friend of mine. We've bumped into each other a few times, but um, I love this brother. He's he's, um, uh, a writer, storyteller, activist, public scholar. His name is uh, Dr. Terrence Lester. And welcome, bro. It's good to see you, man. Shane, it's uh, amazing to be here. Um, I'm grateful to be here to hang out with you. Yeah, me too. And um, you, you, I want to hear, you know, I want folks to hear a little bit more about your work. I mean, actually, as we're recording this, I'm looking outside my window and we've been building a little community here um, on the north side of Philly for 20. This is our 25th year, man. Wow. <laughs> I'm just throw it all 25, out there. 25, 25 years. Yeah. And there's like 100 people. Um, getting food and 
there's uh, just a lot of love happening across the street here, but you know, it, it, it reminds me of, of the, uh, what I know of your work at love beyond walls. Um, I think it, it's really pretty similar to what we're up to here. And um, tell us a little bit more. I mean, first, you know, a little bit more about you and how you got into this work. We're going to get to your books and everything, but I, I think we, you know, uh, I, I like hearing how folks, um, continue to choose Jesus in spite of the embarrassing things Christians have done in his name. So here you are, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, man, it's a, it's a joy to be here and I am uh, deeply uh, moved by the compassion description that you gave of people standing outside of your window. I think uh, that is the essence of how my life has been shaped and formed um, by people extending the table, right? Where uh, we're not building big, bigger walls, but we're extending longer tables or building longer tables uh, for people to be invited to the the table uh, where yes. all it are included, right? And so, man, that happened for me in the city of Atlanta. Um, just, you know, I had one of my friend's fathers uh, whose name was Mr. Moore, uh, saw me when I was 16 and a half years old and I was experiencing homelessness myself and uh, saw value in me. He was a mm-hmm. pastor. He was a, a family man. But m- more more importantly, he became Jesus to me. He would call out things um, in my life when I was at my lowest point, mm-hmm. when I didn't understand uh, the family dysfunction that I had in my house, when I was looking for meals at night or begging for change at a gas station. Um, He was the one that told me that God had a greater purpose for me. And he became like a mentor to me, uh, walked with me, encouraged me to finish high school, uh, to overcome, you know, a lot of the challenges that I was facing. But most importantly, I think what I learned from him is how to have faith and how the faith of God extended to those who were deemed invisible or marginalized because that's where I found myself. Um, Fast forwarding years later, uh, before Mr. Moore passed away, he encouraged me to use the story that God was developing in my life to reach out to those that I could relate to uh, because I had gone, uh, been through those types of challenges. And that's kind of like you know, how I got into the work. It's not a hobby for me. Um, When I say that Jesus has really changed my life, the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the witness of Jesus, how Jesus shows up as Howard Thurman says, Mm. and gives news to those who have their backs against the wall. Like I was that person with my back against the wall and the experience of love and proximity that I felt, felt, by the good news of God, I wanted to extend that same uh, news in the way that I show up, not just in yeah. words, but in the tangible deeds and how I live my life. Yeah, man. Um, and and w- w- tell us a little bit more what that looks like, you know, w- with Love Beyond Walls. Now, what does it look like to show up and to, you know, yeah. not just do the charity and relief work, but do the advocacy and the solidarity, the building love and community yeah. together, right? Yeah, man, I, I think uh, one of the, the the things that we pride ourselves in in the work that we do is narrative justice. Um, it's a reframing and a retelling of the, the narratives of those who have 
uh, been on and housed and viewed through a very criminal lens. You know, it's over the last almost five decades where the criminality of the experience of homelessness has been on the rise with over 140 cities around the country that has uh, enacted policies and ordinances and laws that kind of create this this sort of fr social framing where people view those who are unhoused as those being criminal and other yeah. and, uh, you know, those who should be discarded. And so like our work centers the voices of those who have been unhoused because the experience of homelessness is not monolithic. And many times people think that uh, you go through the experience of homelessness. It's only one or two categories that people put you in, uh, that you're unwell or that you are addicted to, to substances. And, yeah. you know, there's so many ways that people arrive into this plight. And so a part of our work is about uh, reclaiming those stories and empowering the voices of those in the community. And then we have all of these types of creative ways that we've used to build relationship. I mean, I could talk about uh, giving those who are unhoused access to uh, public sanitation, uh, to showers, to grooming support services, to identification recovery, to uh, housing, to reunification with their lost family members, all of those sorts of things are food or clothing or some of the basic essentials. But for us, it's been about knowing the person, yeah. being proximate to the person, understanding that the depth of the relationship is where the redemption happens. And so uh, we've kind of built a community and a movement of doors to uh, be constantly uh, engaged in those relationships. And so we don't do a number of things that, you know, many people do, but we try to pride ourselves in building those authentic relationships. Yeah, that's good, man. I mean, uh, the closer we are to the people, the more we know, um, the pulse, right? The kind of like I, I remember some of my friends telling me, "We don't need another peanut butter and jelly sandwich, man. I need some socks. <laughs> socks are the first thing to go. <laughs> bring, bring me socks. Look, get a PB look. and J, man. <laughs> yeah, socks. Conversation. Yeah. I mean, when you stand in solidarity with communities that are suffering, you know their stories. You know their hopes, their fears, their struggles, their sufferings. It's 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 not standing for people it's standing alongside people when they are challenged with you know overwhelming odds or any type of um marginalization and so that's what we've really been about man you know it's like yeah. you say uh your friend doesn't want a PB&J he needs some socks but you got to get proximate enough to be able to understand and be close and have that uh safe community with people to be able to have them open up to you in that way yeah, and that's that's a lot of what you know. The last couple of decades have been for us in Philly, challenging the anti-homeless legislation and the laws, even the way that we build benches, the way that we kind of push yes. people to the side. Right? There's just all kind of layers of this. And I remember one of the one of the great stories down there in, in Georgia was our friends. Uh, uh, um, that well, they they kept finding that folks were being. Uh, harassed by the police and given citations sometimes for not being able to find a public restroom. And, you know, if you've ever yeah. been around the city, especially here in Philly or I'm sure in Atlanta, like it's hard to find a restroom, especially if you don't have money to buy something. And so um, hmm. there was several cases where people were even 
uh, given a, a, a sex offense citation. So like they could wow. become a, a registered sex offender would, would ruin the rest of their life because they were using the bathroom behind a dumpster in an alleyway or something. Right. So I remember there's a whole campaign down in uh, Atlanta there that was called pee for free with dignity and people, you know, carried, <laughs> carried toilets to the Capitol or to the mayor's office there. And we're, you know, asking for public restrooms. So there's, there's so many layers and it's, it, it is about dignity, right? It's like knowing if I was in that place, like that might not be the first thing you think of, but you know, how do you use a restroom? Where do you find, like, where do you find someone just to listen to you? How do you find an ID when you don't, how do you get mail? You know, all these catch 22s. Right. And so yeah. um, that's powerful, man. I, I, I think, um, um, as we, you know, you were talking about what, how someone can end up without a house. I think the flip side of that's true too, right? Like a lot of people are not worried about their housing because of a lot of different reasons too. I, I remember that old uh, saying, uh, some people were born on third base, but they act like they hit a triple. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You can, you can say that again, brother. <laughs> So there's a lot of things that we take for granted that that po- people with some degree of so-called privilege or whatever have that other folks, you know, um, may not have been on born on third base. Um, but I want to get to your work. And some people uh, weren't born on third base and some people were never born near field. <laughs> right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know, like, in addition to your work on the ground, you know, organizing and coming alongside people, um, you've also got a doctor in front of your name. And, um, you know, you're you're a great thinker and scholar. And um, uh, let's talk about a couple of the things that you've written. I mean, you've, you've written several books. And, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, y'all, I'm talking to Dr. Terrence Lester. Uh, he's a writer, storyteller, activist. He's also the... the um, founder of Love Beyond Walls down in Georgia, um, doing great work all over the country. But the books that you've written, one of them is I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People. I'm also noticing my buddy, uh, Pastor Dave Gibbons, wrote the uh, the <laughs> foreword on that. He's a great, great brother. And then you've written um, uh, when, when We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Um, and this new book, all God's children is just getting printed probably right now as we talk. And I've got a copy um, coming to me and we're going to do it in the book club at red letter Christians, but talk a little bit about these, uh, you know, these books and your, your work to tell a better story, man. Yeah, man. I know what it's, I know what it's like to not be seen Mm. and I know what it's like to being high school and uh, the night before you sleep in a park and you find the courage to go to school and have teachers Mm. label you. I know what it's like to be overlooked and to be deemed invisible based upon your social location or your experience, your experiences. And so like one of the things that I really do in the book, I see you how love opens our eyes to invisible people is I'm trying to, you know, communicate to folks that the worth of a person is not necessarily where they are geographically. It's about the inner worth 
uh, of their being, you know, yeah. uh, the inherent worth and dignity. And we are called as as Jesus followers to call that out in people, um, because I wouldn't be where I am had it not been for people coming into my life, seeing me when we stand is about, you know, the power of community and doing justice work and how, you know, you have to move from a singular perspective right. uh, to be in collaboration with other people in community to actually show up in the world to combat uh, injustices. And you start with where you are, right? Yeah. Uh, and that book is all about connection and community. And then All God's Children is more about my experiences as a Black man in white institutions and uh, the ways in which I've had to learn my own Black history and learning from my grandmother and uh, dealing with erasure and like passing that information along to my kids. And we've seen this happening all across the country with the banning of uh, bla uh, black history books, oriented books and all of those things. And so I really try to deal with the realities of what it means to stand in solidarity with uh, people who have been oppressed. And so all of those books work together. Uh, they have their own unique uh, positioning, but I think uh, what I'm trying to do in all of the book is is all of the books are is talk about, you know, how do you make a difference? How do you show up and add to the the collective fabric of social change? Yeah. So before we get to the new book, tell me, I, I was interested as you're talking about um, community and um, your your second book. When we stand, the a lot of folks are. Well, there's a lot of people leaving the church, right? There's a lot of people that are not necessarily going anywhere, though, and they're, they're not finding yeah. a spiritual home. And I'm, I'm I'm wondering what that looks like for you right now, like what what community life giving, you know, spiritual circles look like. Do you have like a congregation that you worship at on Sunday? Do you have is it more about the organizing work that you're doing is kind of your people or um what what does it look like to you know kind of find that that community for you right now where you belong and you really feel the the life giving work of the the gospel kind of inspiring you and pushing you on? Yeah, it's a great question, man. Um, I've been able to find Jesus in many different places, right? Um, we do as a family uh, have a, a church that we frequent often uh, to worship. It's not you know, every single Sunday, but we do have a space where we go and we congregate and we have connections and community. Um, but I would say a lot of the life and the spiritual formation that I've been able to experience with joys is connecting with the people in our community, um, praying with a brother or sister who was praying for a meal or, you know, being able to give the power of dignity or affirm the uh, the dignity, the inherent worth and value of a person uh, by giving a bar of soap and listening to someone's story, by reading the scriptures with uh, individuals who were put out of restaurants uh, for asking for water or to access the restroom. I've seen Jesus show up in those places, and it's mm. beautiful. And it reminds me of the power of the gospel, the power of good news, but how God is actually actively at work. And so... Uh, I, I would say for me, it's twofold. It's uh, corporate, right? Um, gathering with folks, but it's also uh, uh, found in the streets, right? Yeah. Uh, where I feel most comfortable. Yeah. 
And as you as you kind of zoom out of that to the local stuff, um, are you are, are there places that you can kind of see hope and movement and imagination happening like uh, more broadly, like in our? I think you know, for me, one of the I mean, we're trying to curate some of those spaces w- with Red Letter Christians, but um, the Poor People's Campaign, the Christian Community oh, yeah, yeah. Development Association. I mean, there's yeah, several CCDA, different spaces that give yeah. me a lot of life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I, I love uh, Red Letter Quick Christians, uh, CCDA. Uh, you know, I got some friends over there. Uh, I just actually shared a blog about the accident I was in last year with CCDA, the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Reverend William Barber uh, is and Liz, uh, Dr. Liz Theo Harris are doing incredible yeah. work. Yeah. And I, I've seen, you know, small pockets of uh, smaller organizations that are more grassroots, that's really in the trenches uh, doing the work, whether in the city of Atlanta, uh, Chicago, New York, uh, all around the country. And I'm always inspired by by seeing the coming together of of people. So, yeah. Yeah, man, I would that's say. good. And I, I was, you know, just down there with the the King Center and you got oh, some, yeah. D- Dr. Vonetta West, you know, she was yeah. on the March and Nash. Shout out to Dr. Just, West. Yeah, come on. And uh, there's some good people down there. So we're at, we're looking to do all kinds of collaborating. And, um, man, I want to make sure we get to the book, but I don't know if you wanted to say that a lot of eyes are on, the militarized police and the 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 organizing work down there. I don't know if you want to say more about what's happening in Georgia um, before we get to your new book, because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to tell people about it. But uh, anything else that's happening right now down there that we need to know about or ways that we can support? Yeah, I would just uh, I would say to uh, be aware of the ways in which uh, cities, as you described, all around the country are being hostile uh, towards vulnerable communities. Um, you know, what is happening in Georgia is a depiction of what is happening all across the uh, city with uh, police being militarized, uh, the unhoused, our unhoused neighbors facing hostile architecture and displacement and, uh, you know, voter suppression um, the the whole deal, um, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Is, is like uh, thematic all around the country. And so, man, we might uh, have to do a whole a whole nother conversation. on Yeah, that, I mean, I, I got to fire deep, my bones right yeah, now, man. Like when yeah. it, it, we've had several <laughs> incidents with police, I've got a handful of really positive encounters, but we've had some really, really terrible ones, you know, and um Oh yeah, um, I ain't gonna go into a lot of detail. I know you got your own story. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Lord, somebody was, you know, I was in one of these suburban places, and they were asking me, like, you know, if I'm scared of my neighborhood with all the gun violence and stuff. I'm like, honest to goodness, the scariest times I've ever had have been police encounters, and because there's such a disproportionate power structure, you know. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure if I get shot in my neighborhood, it, it's not going to come from where I think it, you know, where, where some people think it might go. But like we, we've someone, I, I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but we, we had like a, a body that was found on the corner and the police officers came and they were just like, this is Kensington. Like, no, I mean, it bro- broke my heart that, that they had become that callous. Right. And this is undoubtedly a, yes. someone that was probably living on the street. I mean, there's a shopping cart and, you know, everything there. Um, and brother, we could we couldn't even get them to put a blanket over the body while the kids are going to school. And we're like, mm-hmm. really? That that's mm-hmm. like how um desecrated we we've come to to be to to a, a human life that's lost on our mm-hmm. 
corner. And so anyway, I ain't wanted to, to lose track of, of, of uh, I want to get back to your book, but that's what you're talking about, right? You're talking about how, I mean, even yeah, from yeah. the beginning, like seeing people, this person had a name, they were made in the image of God. Like uh, yeah. their, their life is just as precious and valuable as my life or your, or this cop's life or our mayor's life or our president's life, whoever yeah. you're yeah. Like, we're all equally made in the image of God. And I think as you, as you write these books, it's kind of like, as that scripture says, we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes. So you're kind of telling your own story. Talk about like, I mean, don't, don't give the spoiler, you know, for this new book, but it's coming out right now. And um, tell us a little bit about this new kind of fire in your bones or the next chapter of, of the, the gospel, according to Dr. Terrence. <laughs> Man, I, I, uh, I was talking to a good buddy of mine and I was talking about um, that we are in the era of intellectual warfare where the mind is the battlefield. And, you know, where I am in, you know, my scholarly journey, I am, you know, joining this, this fight to make sure people are aware uh, people make sure people aren't ignorant uh, because there is a difference between woeful ignorance and willful ignorance, right? Come on. Come woeful on. is just like, I, I, I just don't know. But willful is when you're stubborn, mm-hmm. you know the truth, uh, but you still deny the truth. And mm-hmm. so I think, uh, you know, joining alongside you and Reverend Barber, Liz Theo Harris, like all of the truth fighters and um, people who are out there telling truth is we're really battling uh, people's mind and how they have been socially framed. And so... That's mm. that's what I am, man. That's what I want to do uh, with this next uh, phase of my my life and my writing career. Yeah, I love it, man. I'm I'm just uh, honored to stand alongside of you as we we do this holy work together. So uh, uh, keep an eye out, y'all. Um, you've been listening to Terrence Lester, and uh, his new book is All God's Children, uh, and it's coming out right in in the next few weeks hot off the press all god's children how confronting buried history can build racial solidarity so i was i recorded this very personal video um a couple days ago it was sunday my 91 year old grandmother uh, came to our organization we started a museum called dignity museum that uh focuses on the voices of those who are uh, unhoused. And it's the first museum in the United States uh, that advocates on behalf of homelessness. And it's housed in a shipping container. And my 91-year-old grandmother uh, comes through and I'm walking her around and like showing her the, the walls and allowing her to listen to stories and stuff. And then we had this moment and I asked her, I say, you know, what was going on when you were alive? And she went into these very descriptive Mm. stories about having to enter into the back of buildings uh, to access food or restaurants. Uh, When it came to going to movie theaters, Black people had to sit in the back. Uh, She talked about her experiences on the bus and how schools were segregated and how she received, you know, very shabby books, um, sometimes with outdated information Uh, She talked about her experiences in a way. And then she looks at me and she says, you know, you're doing work that I would have never been able to do. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't I wasn't able to like go to a museum like this to to be educated in this way. And um, 
you know, it kind of broke my heart, but it gave me inspiration because she was saying like, yo, like you should, you should keep going. Mm. So when I think about my work, um, the intersection of poverty and race and the intersection of class and all of the intersections that make up or uphold white supremacy or uh, injustice or oppression, man, like I, I'm deeply committed to that yeah. with all of my being, because I remember not from just a, a textbook, but from my living historical epistle mm, in my grandmother right. that is still alive, that is telling me the this this oral tradition, these stories that will live with me and that I have a chance to pass along to my kids, bro. It's so important to be aware of racial history, uh, the history of this country. Case in point, bro, I got a text message from my daughter and I'm getting emotional uh, telling the story, but I was in a meeting. Uh, we were doing some advocacy work and my daughter's like, hey, I, and whenever she says, hey, I know something's wrong in the text. Mm. I say, what's going on? She had worn an African headscarf to school that day. Uh, because she's uh, at that time, she was in the eighth grade. She was learning her racial identity and trying to understand her herself and our heritage and all of that stuff. And we we try to encourage. And she says, I had a, a white principal stop me in the hallway and demand that I would take my African head rep off. And I was telling her it was a part of my heritage. And she was like, no, it's a hat. You need to take it off. Uh, that's what Muslims do, like saying all of these derogatory uh, terms to my daughter. I stopped what I was doing. I go to the school. I go mm -hmm. to the front office and I ask to speak to the assistant principal. I literally have to get into a conference room um, and educate uh, the assistant principal that, you know, mm. during the transatlantic slave trade, African hit wraps or hit scars were, were one of the only pieces of garments that was able to make it to the new Americas. Right. And then after it made it to the new Americas, uh, you know, persons who were enslaving Africans actually used the headscarf to identify women as property. Mm. And here in the recent years, you know, uh, black women have, you know, embraced natural hair and started to reclaim this garment as being something that is a part of our, our history and our heritage. Ooh. And I tell this assistant principal this, and she's just totally blown away, calls my daughter into the office, apologizes to my daughter. And I think that was a moment for my daughter to realize how important it was not to bury history, but to unpack it and to unearth it because we draw strength and power from our, our history and our heritage. And that's what I'm trying to do um, in this book. All God's children is like literally let folks know that we're all God's children. It's not partial history. It's all the history, you know, and we yeah. have to confront it in a way that gives us to the license to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that, that story. I mean, it's so deeply personal and there's lots of, uh, other stories I'm sure you've got, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I think that was powerful because I like stories that where there is an openness, right? Like, even though you recognize that like um, something wrong happened here, um, 
that you at least want to believe that it's not willful, right? And I I, I think of that, uh, you know, that powerful line of Dr. King where he said, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> right. And conscientious stupidity, conscientious stupidity. And there's a lot of people that just don't want to know, you know, like burying the hands over their eyes or denying that history or trying to like retell a version of history that's more like they want it to be than what it really was. And I mean, a lot of this is, it, it is a battle of narrative, you know, like that, that old mm. proverb that says until the lion tells his own history, we're always going to have the perspective of the hunter, you know, and, and of the I, hunter. that's yeah, right. Man. So you're, that's holy work, man. Try. And there's so many people that, you know, we're trying to create that cloud of witnesses still, you know, with uh, Jamar Tisby and uh, oh, yeah. May and all these folks that are doing a good job, Beth uh, Barr, you know, that are that are historians and the, all the folks challenging Christian nationalism and this kind of distortion of our faith, uh, because it, it a lot of it is just an outright denial of history, right? A betrayal. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, the, shout tr- out. the truth, the truth will set us free and the set us free, right? Hold us hostage. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, look, in mind and spirit, right? That's uh, it, man. Yeah, shout out to my brother, uh, my doctor brother, uh, Jamar Tisby. I, I, I just did a, a podcast with him the other day, um, talking about uh, Jordan Neely up in yes. New York, yeah, and you know, reflecting on the life of Jordan Neely and also talking about how the criminal lens that we have allowed to be created towards the unhoused community provokes violence. Yes. Right. And how, um, you know, there's a history associated with the evolution of this criminality and talking about public policy that caused a second mass homelessness era. I was, I'm getting into a lot of uh, my doctoral research and all that stuff, but like the rhetoric, right. Um, Teresa Gowan in her book, uh, hobos, hustlers and backsliders has this conceptual uh, chart of like the constructions of poverty. And there's three narratives, sin talk, sick talk, and system talk. Wow. You know, hold on, hold on. Say that one more time. Sin talk, sin talk, sick talk, and system talk. Three narratives yep. around wow. the constructions of, of poverty. Sin talk is more of like the moral failings and, you know, h- how we have chosen to solve this is through punishment, right? Yeah. Um, and that derives, she uh, does this work really good on, you know, the words and of Martin Luther, the reformer who, who connected poverty to sin. Right. And how, uh, you know, when it became westernized, mixed in with the Horatio Alger myth of, you know, you know, racks the richest tales and mythology and all of that, we kind of you know, cast blame on those who are poor, uh, almost through a lens of saying you maybe you don't have a a good heart, maybe you don't have good yeah. character, maybe you, uh, you know, you you're not a good person. All of these stories that we like to tell. When I know poor uh, poor people who know more Bible and more Jesus than some folks who have access to everything, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, and then talk is like this narrative of maybe somebody is just mentally unwell. And the only issue I have with this is that we demonize those who are suffering and yet uh, we don't provide the types of resources 
uh, for yeah. those who are suffering. We yeah, continue yeah, yeah. to allow food deserts to exist, not have ag- people to have access to mental health uh, institutions at a affordable cost. We we do all of these things, and then we we go to our ther- therapy sessions. <laughs> we access yeah. things that are healthy for us to cope, but then we look at somebody who is considered poor or unhoused, and we demonize them for not having access to the things that we enjoy. Mm. <laughs> right? Mm. Which is, you know, it's it's sickening, and yeah. it's violent. And that type of narrative creates this narrative where we use this language, sin and sickness to justify our distance from a community that that is created in the beloved image of God. Mm, right. Amen. Yeah. And then the, the system talk is more or less about, yo, it's 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 the lower end of the, the spectrum, she says, because we want we don't want to deal with you know, historical racism, concentrated poverty, white supremacy, a lot of the oppression that causes some of the the violence that we see that shows up and harms people at the lowest parts of their life. Mm. And we don't pay any attention to that and we need to shift our focus. But when I was doing my research, the, the thing that I inserted or created, I'm like, we need more worth talk. And that's why I, I connected to my research to yeah. uh, ML King's beloved community. Yeah. Because King is arguing, yo, like we we live in a world house. The world is our address. Mm. And if a person yep. is poor and he's across from you or unhoused, and if, if they're across from you, because the world is our address, they're still your neighbor. Mm. Yeah. That that Ubuntu, right? That that, uh, yeah, that Ubuntu. I, we were connected to each other and I can't be all I'm meant to be until you're all you're meant to be. I, oh, I, I, you know, and I, I was even thinking about that that back to that sickness part. Even how we like we we twist this thing to where, you know, we're talking about gun violence and men- mental illness, and you're like, what actually when you really look at the data, a person who actually has mental health struggles is more likely to be a victim of violence than they are a perpetrator of violence. Mm. Um, Mm. They're more likely to be shot than to do a shooting. And yet we've kind of Mm. created this way of thinking about it. Right. And, and even um, the resources that you're going to put towards mental health. I mean, they're they're saying that some of the same folks that, that are cutting uh, resources for folks with mental health are the ones that, are saying that gun violence is just an issue of mental health. It, it just it boggles the mind. The devil, the devil is. <laughs> it, 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 look, it boggles, bro. It boggles the mind, and not only that, it is, it is violent. Yeah, yeah. People's lives are to extinct. to strip away resources that you get free. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 sick, and it's violent, and. Yeah. You know, well, that and when I was reading about it, is, well, I was just I was just thinking about that brother, you know, Jordan Neely, uh, when, when I was reading his story and what he'd been through and what happened to his mother. And um, mm. it is amazing to me, especially Christians. But I mean, anybody, any person with a heart and a conscience, which is everybody, I would hope like that, how often people lead with suspicion, you know, something must have been and it, rather than compassion and going. What, what what else what else am I not seeing here right and now the more that we know about that brother the more our heart breaks you know and you can't bring him yes. back now we can't yeah. bring him back can't now bring, you can't you, can't you know bring him back. yeah you, brother you know um I, I've said this before and I'll say it again 
when a black man dies from any type of violence, he, he experiences two deaths. I say this in my book, When We Stand. The first death is the death of the physical body. The mm. second death is character assassination. Mm. Mm. It's two deaths. Mm. Yeah. And man, it is. It is something that is deeply ingrained, that is systemically wrong and violent when we allow narratives to control and dictate how we show up with our heart. Man, when I was reading how this brother was made to testify as a child, how he was how he entered into the foster care system, how he never received report uh, uh, support, how he zeroed out of the uh, foster care system, how he ended up on the streets. He his life was littered with trauma. Yeah. Littered. Yeah. Lord. Yeah. Littered. Yeah. And it breaks my heart. It yeah. breaks my heart. And if it doesn't break our heart, so we do the proper work, the holy work of justice to ensure that other young kids, uh, you know, children that are in the foster care system right now who uh, when they turn 18 years old and they zero out aren't caught in in a situation where they end up further excluded yeah yeah and marginalized bro yeah you know it was a, a viral video that just went viral of a young lady she recorded herself on a cell phone and she was talking about how i just turned 18 years old and my foster care parents dropped me off downtown and she was showing all of the stuff. Um, oh. They literally put her out. And so she went from zeroing out being 18 to now experiencing homelessness. And like a pastor here in mm. Georgia or in the city of Atlanta rallied together around to get this young lady support. But it happens more often than we are privy to. Yeah. And this is the that we are called to do to make people aware of not just the single cases, but this is happening every single second, bro. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? mm. Yeah. I see you. Ooh. I see you. <laughs> well, man, I guess uh, we, we we get to put a little dot 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 on this and um, yeah. uh, do some more stuff together. But tell, my, uh, leave us with some some voices that you're listening to. Like, uh, what what are you reading, listening to? That um, you've already dropped a bunch of them. I mean, you're you're obviously uh, got your own book club going on over there. But yeah, tell yeah. us some, mean, tell us some stuff we should be paying attention to. I read uh, Sheila Rise, Wise Row, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black. I mm. read Jamar Tisby stuff, yeah. Ingram Kennedy stuff. Uh, I, I read a lot of policy books uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, De Deborah Stone, Snyder and Ingram. Um, I even got you in the in the library, what, Reverend William Barber stuff. I mean, I, I got a bro, I could... No, I, mean, I like it, man. I like looking at people's bookshelves. I know, just like, I know, I know everybody's listening. I read in, a lot of you, stuff. You've got a good bookshelf back there. And uh, yeah, like we, Katie's been reading me. Um, we read together quite a bit and, uh, uh, you know, we'll be reading our own book and it'll be like, hold on, listen. And then, you know, she'll read me. And we, she just finished the stamp from the beginning, you know, Ibram's book. And, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. That thing yeah. was, that was, a, that was in, uh, like a, an entire literary adventure right there. Yeah, bro, yeah. Bias. Bro, this yeah. 
this book right here. Oh man, it. Um, Say that full title for the folks listening in uh, that can't see the bias uncovering the hidden prejudice that shapes what we see, think, and do. Mm. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a really deep book talking about how bias is formed uh, through images and um, you know environment and how it uh, programs our minds when we uh, have bias fashioned in a certain way for us to be able to see bias or have that bias and it creates this lens in which we see <laughs> other people who may have similar characteristics, mainly, you know, black folk. I mean, she's, yeah, yeah. Uh, she is doing a, a really great job, but yeah, man. That's good. I, that's, that's, that's good homework. That's good homework. I take with me there. I got a few yeah. reading assignments. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll we'll talk again soon, man. But um, this has been a gift. Thanks, and thanks for the little after chat uh, for the folks listening on the podcast. So, uh, I think y'all heard it. But Terrence Lester, uh, that's his website too. So, go check it out. Follow what he's doing, and we'll hopefully see more and more of you at Red Letter Christians, man. We're all better off with a little bit more Dr. Terrence in our midst. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thank you, man. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.